Let's open our Bibles, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 17. We're in the third part of the message tonight, the rise of ecclesiastical Babylon. This is really, to me, one of the most interesting parts of the study of Revelation, the study of the tribulation. Uh, We're talking about ecclesiastical Babylon, which means the religious system of the Antichrist. And as you know, I spend all of my life dealing with religion. There are two important, among many duties that a pastor has, there are two very important aspects. One of those is preaching the truth of God's Word. And so I labor diligently to try to bring you the truth from God's Word. But I also have another side of that. And not only do we have to preach the correct doctrine as the Bible teaches it, but I also have to expose false doctrine. And sometimes that becomes... The most important part is exposing a person's false doctrine before you can ever help them to see the truth. And so there are many different interesting facets of the tribulation. Uh, Some of you like to hear about certain parts of this, like the mark of the beast, wondering what 666 means, trying to figure all of that out. Some of you like to hear about the judgments, and you turn a, a keen ear or a critical eye to natural phenomena or unnatural phenomena that might be happening in the world today. And people are always asking the question, are we now living in the end times? And you want to look at these different things and maybe draw from that that we are in the actual last days just before Christ comes. But probably the most important part of all of this, or interesting part, I should say, of me in the study of the book of Revelation is what happens in the world of religion uh, when the Antichrist comes. And really, what's happening now that could be indicators that the Antichrist, his coming, could be right around the corner. I want to speak in a few weeks. Um, I think it's in the last part of this. We're, I'm up to six parts in this now, and uh, we're going to get through eventually with the rise of ecclesiastical Babylon. And in the last part, I'm going to do a little bit of talking about ecumenicism. But one of the things that that was interesting to me, maybe you wonder, what do I do on Sunday afternoon? Well, I read the paper a little bit, things like that, and, and I go over the message for the evening. But sometimes I flip on the television and watch a little bit of religious programming. And I've told you before, sometimes that's just to get my kicks and my laughs. But um, today I was watching a program... Uh, a Roman Catholic priest and another and a lady there were discussing, just going over uh, the study of Roman Catholic doctrine. And this lady happened to be from Lexington, Kentucky, where I'm from, and she'd started this thing on um, sort of like a a uh, mail order thing that you could do to study Catholic doctrine and those kinds of things. But one of the interesting things that the priest that was on this program said was that he attended some Protestant services. And he said he liked to do that. And really the gist of this was he could see how Protestants are working their way back towards Rome. And so he was mentioning uh, attending a Presbyterian service. And he said, I went in and they have two two, uh, Eucharistic type messages on that particular day. He said they have the altar in front, they have a candle on each side, they have the bread and the wine. And he just stopped with that and he said, we're getting, we're making progress. Well, that's what we're seeing here with the rise of ecclesiastical Babylon. Religion is going to play a major role in the end time. In the first three and a half years of the tribulation, 
religion will help the Antichrist gain his power. And assurances will be made by some of the greatest religious leaders of the time telling them that everything that the Antichrist says is fine, that he's really a good person, that he has people's interest at heart, and they'll help to bring this man into power when actually people are being duped and they're dragged along as they applaud the Antichrist as the world savior. And I think one of the saddest, most frightening parts of this is that the people who do this are highly trusted religious figures. Now, if you think about it, if you are devout to your religion, I mean, if you're really dedicated to what you believe, who, who is the person that you put your most trust in when it comes to religion? I hope that would be the pastor, that you would think of him as a spiritual mentor, uh, someone who can guide you in spiritual matters, and you, you trust what I say from the pulpit. And as you know, I've never encouraged you to blindly trust what I say. I want you to take God's word And I want you to verify what I say. Is it really the truth? Is this what the Bible says? But I hope that you think that I'm not the kind of person who would deliberately twist the Scriptures in the very beginning. That what I would try to do is try to make the Scriptures work to my own advantage. And I would deliberately teach you something that was false. So I think that your first reaction when you hear me preach something, your first reaction should be that is the truth. And you would accept it as the truth of God's word. And as I said, then you would go ahead and verify that with your own study. The Apostle Paul was very thankful for that aspect of the Thessalonians uh, church when they heard him preach. Here's what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2. He said, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. So that ought to be the first reaction when you hear the word uh, from the pastor, and being good Bereans, you continue to read, you continue to study, and you verify it. So at least you think that the truth is there, and you don't think that I would, I'm honest enough that I wouldn't purposely deceive you. I wish that I could be as charitable to those that are preaching today in other churches. And I wish that I could, I could tell you that all preachers are honest and sincere, that they have nothing at heart more than just seeing souls saved and seeing the people of God actually grow closer to him. But preachers in churches today have, and many of these churches have a much different idea. They know that people are naturally religious, and the Bible teaches us that. Man is naturally religious. Man is looking to believe in something spiritually, to believe a God in a God of some sort or another. And many of these people have a scheme from the very beginning to try to fool people into thinking that they're teaching the truth, and they will take advantage of them. So they know about that natural inclination that man has. And the Scripture gives us repeated warnings about this, that there are deceitful preachers. It's what we're discussing in the Sunday morning series, these appalling preachers. Jesus called them ravening wolves. They pretend to be real shepherds, but they never actually had any good intentions from the very beginning. They're Satan's ministers who have been transformed into angels of light. Well, in this part of the study, we're looking into a religious system that's rotten to the core. Now, its ministers are often highly deceptive. Some in the lower rank and file of this may be honest and sincere in what they believe even though they're wrong. But the hierarchy, those higher 
up. And the higher that you go, they become increasingly and increasingly more corrupt. Every rung of the ladder you climb, it gets more corrupt. And when you get to the very top of it all, there's massive deceit. There are evil hearts with lust for power. And that's the situation with the Antichrist. While the religious leaders uh, support the government, they have another motive in mind. They support the Antichrist because when they know that he comes into control, that they will also be in control. Well, we're looking at a religious system that has that lust for power and wants to be in control. So let's look at these scriptures again. We'll have a little bit of review in just a moment, and then we'll go on. But Revelation 17, verse number 1, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk, with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stone and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman of the beast that carrieth her, which hath the seven heads and the ten horns. Now verse number five is the key verse in this particular part that we've been discussing. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. The mother of harlots is this woman that rides the beast. Now the woman represents apostate religion and the beast that she rides upon is the kingdom of the Antichrist. Now the apostate religion that we're speaking of here is a gathering of all the religions in the world. All of them have come together in one, in one conglomerate, but all of them actually had their beginnings in one place. The, the fountainhead, the, the, where it all comes from, is from ancient Babylon. That's the mother. And so what we have here is a revival of this ancient empire, the religion of the ancient empire. It's been gone now for 2,500 years. That is since the... Uh, Babylonian, the last of the Babylonians' power. And yet its influence has actually gone out and into all of the world. And ever since the flood, this, this religion has been in place. And this false religion is at its heart destroying the worship of the one true Jehovah God. Now the same system then of religion that was established in Babylon is the root of all those false religions. Uh, religions, the same gods that they worship, the same tales that they told, the same perversions that they practice, many of those are still with us today. The only difference between then and now are the names. So the system is there. Uh, there's been some refinement to it. There's been uh, some tweaking of the system. There have been additions to it. But it's essentially that same old false religion that began, began 4,500 years ago right after the flood. Well, in the first part of the tribulation, this old religion that at present, uh, in the day that we're living in right now, this is all broken into many, many different pieces, hundreds of pieces that are spread throughout the world. But they're going to come back together, as I said, into this one conglomerate called Ecclesiastical Babylon. Now, that is one side 
There are two sides to the Antichrist empire. One is the ecclesiastical side and the other is the political side. The ecclesiastical side will be very, very important in the first part of the tribulation because it will sweep the Antichrist into worldwide power. But then it will be crushed by a political coalition. When the Antichrist actually gets the world under his control, then these powers, and we'll find this out a a little bit later when we study the later verses, but these political powers will actually destroy this religious system. And that doesn't mean that religion is going to be gone. It just means that the new religion will no longer be concerned with a false pretense of worshiping the God of heaven, but actually worshiping the Antichrist himself. And so he, as the word of God says, will set himself up as God. So ecclesiastical Babylon includes all of these religions. But the interesting part to me, the really interesting part of it, is that apostate Christianity is at the head of it. It's under the leadership I believe, with the Roman Catholic Church. Now, Roman Catholicism has been an organized apostate religion for about 1,600 years, but the doctrines that help to formulate the Roman Catholic system or the Roman Catholic Church are actually much, much older than that. They go all the way back to the time of Babylon. So in the first part of this message, this is what we were talking about particularly, was the preparation of the Roman Church. The Babylonians worshipped Uh, Semiramis, who was Nimrod's wife, or or rather she was the high priestess of their religion, and uh, Tammuz was her son. And that was all transformed into the Roman Catholic system of the worship of of the Virgin Mary and of Jesus. Now, the names that Roman Catholicism uses are New Testament names. But make no mistake about this, that the Mary of Roman Catholicism is not the Mary that we find in the Bible. And the Jesus of Roman Catholicism is not the Savior of the world that we find in the Bible. The names have been changed. Semiramis is Mary and Tammuz is Jesus. So what we're talking about here is this same old mother-son cult worship that goes all the way back to Babylon. It's had numerous name changes throughout the centuries. Um, The Phoenicians had a name for them, for these gods, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Romans, the Greeks, name any major civilization that the world has seen, and they have some form of this. It's the same thing. You have Ashtoreth and Baal, you have Isis and Horus, Aphrodite and Eros, Venus and Cupid, and then finally under Roman Catholicism you have Mary and Jesus. So Roman Catholicism was a long, long time in preparation. And in the tribulation time, she's going to achieve one of her major objectives that she's always had, and that is a worldwide religion with political power. Now we called that, this is where we went into the second part of the message, and then we called that the power of the Roman church. And political power is not new to the Roman church because that's how it all began. I mean, the apostate church that's now known as Popish Romanism actually gained its political power when Constantine became the emperor of Rome. Uh, Constantine was a pagan. He saw the political advantages of Christianity, and so he negotiated with a group of apostate churches, and through a series of compromises, the Roman Catholic Church was born. And so the pagan idols of Constantine became the saints of the Roman Catholic Church, and the worship of Semiramis and Tammuz became the worship of Mary and Jesus. So Roman Catholicism has always been happiest when it has that governmental support. That's the way that it started out. And they've always believed, uh, Catholicism has always believed that it ought to have the power to control the governments. And throughout history, they've actually had that power. 
There was a time when there was no king in what was known as the Holy Roman Empire. There was no king that would rule, could rule, without the endorsement of the Pope. Church policy was uh, state policy. And ever since Rome lost that power, the Roman church has been seeking to have that returned. So in the tribulation time, she'll have that again. And through a series of more compromises and of massive deception, Catholicism helps bring the Antichrist to power. Now, the reason I'm saying all this, we're, we're trying to look into the Scriptures and see comparisons. What does the book of Revelation say about this entity that we now know, this religious system that we now know as Roman Catholicism? Well, let's look at verse number 4. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. Now, tonight... Our third part of our message concerns the prosperity of the Roman church. This woman, this apostate church, is clothed in expensive garments, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Now let's look at this, and let's look at the description and see how that fits in with Roman Catholicism. First we have the garments of royalty. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color. Purple... And scarlet are the colors of kings. When John wrote this, the people could very easily connect the dots here because they knew that he was speaking of some special dignity designated by the color of clothing. Uh, The wealthiest people in the empire, the dignitaries in Rome, the Senate, most notably the emperor himself, those in government offices, these were people that wore very expensive clothing and purple was one of their colors. Purple was very costly. It was very hard to obtain. The shellfish, I mean, here here is why it's so costly. There's a shellfish from which they used to extract purple. Uh, It grows, the the shellfish lives in the eastern Mediterranean, and it takes 8,000 of these little mollusks that contain this color purple, it takes 8,000 of those to extract one ounce of purple. That's one of the reasons why it was so expensive. So not everybody ever wore purple. You had to be high up. You had to be a king. You had some kind of a, had to be some kind of a dignitary. And if you remember in the book of Acts, Paul met a lady named Lydia in the city of Philippi. And most likely, well, the Bible says that she was a seller of purple. And most likely, she was a very wealthy merchant woman. And you remember after she was saved that she took Paul and Silas into her house and she lodged them. And most people believe, the most Bible scholars believe, that she was a very wealthy woman. She had a house full of servants and she could well afford to take care of Paul and Silas. So purple, that's one, one thing that shows this, uh, the, the wealth and the opulence of this religious or ecclesiastical Babylon. Then scarlet was also something that was very expensive. Uh, in Scripture, sometimes scarlet portrays sin. For instance, in the book of Isaiah, it says, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And you remember when Jesus was crucified, one of the ways they mocked him was to call him a king, and they put on him a robe of scarlet. Well, this woman wears these colors. And in Roman Catholicism, these are prominent colors. The Roman church says that purple represents repentance, And scarlet represents the blood of the martyrs. And that's actually, well, it's not humorous, I would say, but it's one of the great deceptions of the Roman Catholic Church because they have never repented of the fact that they are the ones who shed the blood of millions of innocent martyrs. 
I'm going to talk more about that in a later message. But verse number 6 says, And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now, I've read some things about this, and Roman Catholics take great exception to those who interpret the Bible like we do, applying this to them. Naturally, you would think that they would. And they would say, well, no, purple's not one of our main colors, and scarlet's not one of our main colors. Well, you, I, you could dispute that by looking at the College of Cardinals. But that's not one of our main colors. White is the dominant color in Roman Catholicism. But even that's a sham, isn't it? Because Roman Catholicism takes the priesthood all the way back into the Old Testament. They make sacrifices every week of the year. They sacrifice over and over again, thousands upon thousands of times all over this world. And they have a priesthood when the Word of God teaches us that we no longer have that kind of a priesthood. There's no one who stands between us and God. Jesus Christ is the only mediator between us and God. And so they don't help themselves by saying, well, the priests wear white and the pope wears white when he says the mass. It doesn't help them at all. It just points them right back to, to ecclesiastical Babylon. So when you think about this as well, would you say that the pope is royalty? Well, maybe no, but look what goes on with the pope. Have you ever seen pictures where the president bows down to kiss his ring? World leaders bow down before the pope? The pope and, this, and the cardinals, they parade around with pomp and circumstance defying the poverty, the humility of Jesus and the disciples. And folks, they love to be worshipped. They love that, to, to have that respect, that glory that belongs to God alone. So I, this woman fits with the Roman Catholic system. They make a, a show of regality with their garments. But the description fits in another way as well, and that's the enticement of prostitution. The woman here is called the great whore, and the way that she dresses is the way that a prostitute would dress. Often what prostitutes would do in those days is they would weave golden threads into their clothing. They would entice with all these different kinds of ostentatious displays. They would throw out a lure that would uh, look inviting. They had a golden cup to drink from. But the cup, as the Word of God describes it here, is the filthiness of her whoredoms. Now that symbolism is given to us because the apostate church is filled with idolatry. Now what system a religion in the world today has more idols than the Roman Catholic Church. What people is more idolatrous in the world than Roman Catholicism? When God chastised Israel for worshiping idols, you know what he called that? He called it fornication. He called it adultery. He called it whoredoms. Many prophets in the Old Testament did speak about this, but probably the definitive book on it is Hosea. I mean, the entire book of Hosea is a picture of how God was disgusted with Israel and he called them to repentance. And the second verse of, of Hosea chapter 1 sets the tone for it all. It says, The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea, and the Lord said to Hosea, Go, uh, go take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. And that is a perfect picture of the Roman church because from the very beginning, idolatry has played a major part. I've already said Constantine's idols became Rome's idols. When you walk into St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, it's so full of idols that you would think that you were Paul standing on Mars Hill speaking to the Athenians. He said the whole place 
was full of idols. Folks, it's no less true at the Vatican. Same, same thing, all kinds of idols, religious prostitution. Thirdly, we see here the adornment of wealth. It says, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. And the Roman Catholic Church is one of the richest organizations in the world. There are billions of dollars in investments and properties that are held by Rome. You know, I've always been interested in this aspect of it. um, Huge churches, cathedrals, I love to to look at those things. And um, particularly the the huge cathedrals that you have in Europe and are found in many European countries. Much of Europe, as I mentioned ago, was called the Holy Roman Empire. And over the centuries, these huge cathedrals were built, and some of them actually even took centuries to build. And you go into those buildings, and the work and the craftsmanship of that is astounding. It's really amazing. St. Peter's uh, in Rome is an astounding building. I don't know how much that the Sistine Chapel must be worth. We visited uh, St. Mark's Cathedral in Venice, and there's a gold mosaic that lines the walls. There's uh, wealth beyond belief. Cathedrals, been cathedrals in France and Switzerland, Austria and Germany and many different European countries. And the wealth of those places is staggering. What religious organization in the world can match that? Now, we're not only talking about that kind of wealth. I mean, wealth in these buildings and those kinds of things. But Rome is also an investing machine. Hotels, industry, transportation, banks. The list of what the Roman Catholic Church is into just goes on and on. There have been many financial scandals in the Roman Catholic Church. Banking scandals, securities fraud, all of that's taken place. I mean, even, uh, even with all of, you know, some of their people that are on the inside that still, that do have at least a little conscience left will say that the Roman system is exceedingly corrupt. Now, let me go back to what I started with. People trust religious leaders. And so what they do many times is they close a blind eye to scandals because they've been duped. I mean, what would you do? What would you do if you had been taught that the church has the power of life and death? What, what would you do if really deep down that you believe that they had the power to put you in purgatory, they can get you out, they can condemn you, they can bless you? They put fear into superstitious people because people are afraid for their souls. Everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to be punished. So what do you do when you believe that your church has the power to get you out of punishment or they can see that you get more punishment? Or what you do is you keep going back to the church that protects pedophiles. You still go back to supporting a religious system that has its spin doctors protecting the Pope that he hasn't covered up all of these things that have gone on the Roman church, the scandals and so forth that have been going on not only for the times that we're living in, but actually for centuries. There are all kinds of things through Rome's history that have been cover-ups of perversions that have been done by the popes. So why do people keep going back? And why do they keep pouring the money in? Well, it's because that they trust that the people that are teaching them are not actually wolves in sheep's clothing. They put their confidence in them. Now, that brings me to another observation about their prosperity. How did they actually accumulate all of it? Well, this, again, is something very interesting to me. How did they get it all? Well, this heading is the inducement to sin. Does it seem odd to you that a religion or that your religion claims to save souls from sin, but they could actually put in uh, in, in place a system that profits 
from sin. I mean, would it seem strange to you that you'd be better off if you do sin, or the church would be better off if you do sin than if you don't sin? Sin has become very profitable to Roman Catholicism. I want to take you back 500 years to probably the most hated person in history to the Roman Catholics, the most hated person. You know who that was? person probably done more damage to the wealth of the Roman, Roman church than any other single person was a monk named Martin Luther. Now, Luther was a conscientious priest, and he had a great deal of difficulty reconciling what he'd been taught in the Church of Rome with what he found in the Bible. And that's no mystery because there is no reconciling what the Church of Rome believes with the Bible. So one of the troubling practices that bothered Luther so much was a practice called the sale of indulgences. Now, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that it has power to forgive sin. And so if you commit a sin and you confess it, they can grant you an indulgence for that. And if they so choose, they can help to lessen the, the penalty for that sin. Well, in Luther's time, the Catholic Church saw that that was a great way to make money. And so what they started to do was to sell indulgences. And what that means is that they put a price tag on sin. Every sin has its price. And even went so far as, in some cases, that if you wanted to commit a sin ahead of time and you knew that you were going to do it, that you could just tell the priest and pay him so much and he would grant you absolution even before the fact. So they sold sin. Now, if you want to really see something funny, and maybe you don't appreciate my sense of humor, but um, I thought this was funny. Go home and on your computer, Google sale of indulgences. If you've ever shopped on the internet, you know, look for things on the internet, um, when, you, when you put in some item that you're looking for, especially if you're wanting to find something cheap, you put the word cheap or something like that in your search engine or in the search box while you're looking for something, Google has a sidebar that comes up with all this listing of places that sell things really cheap. So I Googled sale of indulgences, and here's what I came up with. And I, this, to me, this was funny. It said, deals, sales of indulgences, find our lowest prices and save. <laughs> www.nexttag.com. I didn't know that Next Tag was marketing for the Roman Catholic Church. And those of you that don't do this, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But Luther protested against these sales of indulgences, and it was one of the major issues when he nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral in 1517. And if you didn't know, the actual full title of the 95 Theses is the 95 Theses on the Power of Indulgences. And Luther's protest became the fuel for the fire of the Reformation, and it brought down this practice of the Roman Church of the sales of indulgences. Now, the thing about this is, in all honesty, the Roman Catholic Church still makes those sales, but only in different forms. And so they continue to get rich because they can shave off some punishment for the right amount of money. And so Rome continues to collect on sin because they put people in fear of what's going to happen to their souls. And that's just one instance of their vile practices. So they prove with the Roman Catholic system that Jesus is not really the Savior. Jesus is the pitch man to get you in the door because he didn't really do anything for sin at all. You're not actually saved from your sins by Jesus. You're saved from your sins by what you do. And you can do this in one of two ways. Either you can pay for your sins with a pound of flesh or you can pay for it with an ounce of gold. Those are two ways that you get out of sin in the Roman Catholic Church. It has nothing at all to do with what Jesus did. 
It has to do what you're able to do for the Roman Catholic Church. So this is a way that Rome has accumulated vast amounts of, of wealth. It's on the inducement to sin. So you go into countries where people are, are very oppressed and people are kept poor because everything that they could ever put their hands on, they brought it into the Roman church. And that would help them to lessen their punishment in purgatory or lessen the punishment of their family or whatever. And so what actually happens here is that Roman Catholicism is able to reach beyond the grave to control the soul. And so why do you find huge churches in poverty and poverty-stricken areas? Because the Roman Catholic Church is sucking up all the wealth by trafficking in sin. And so I say that the Roman Catholic Church is better off inducing people to sin than trying to keep them out of it. And they proved it. They proved it in Luther's time because they put a price tag on sin. Sin was up for sale. So the Pope, he's glad to see you come with the worst sin you could possibly commit. That's money in the church coffers. So this is one of the ways that they accumulated all this wealth. And Luther was honest enough that he called them on it and he helped to bring down that particular part of the Roman system. So if it hadn't been for Luther, this hated monk, there's no telling how rich the Roman Catholic Church would be today. Now let me bring up just one more point to you about their prosperity and then we'll be done. Next week I want to try to shorten up the introduction a little bit so we can get in more material in the rev- uh, rather than going through all the review. If I don't do that, it's going to take a long, long time for us to get through. So what is, uh, what is the fifth thing we want to talk about here? Well, f- number five, the way that Rome has gained so much of its prosperity is through the punishment of dissenters. Now, I'm only going to get into just a, a small part of this because this is one part of the subject that we're going to take up in detail later. This part that I want to talk to you about now, though, concerns the wealth that came from Rome's punishment of those who disagreed with the Roman Catholic Church. What happens when you combine religion with the state? Well, what happens um, is that you get a religious system with, with power that's able to enforce its religious beliefs upon the people. Now, this is, of course, one of the reasons why our Constitution says that we can't have a church-state government. And that's because when power is granted to the church, then the church has the power to force people to comply with their doctrines. And we know that America came in to existence largely because of this very fact, religious freedom. The pilgrims came over on the Mayflower for what? Religious freedom, the oppression that they were experiencing. Now, the interesting thing that, about the pilgrims and, and those early colonies that finally became the United States, that none of them were actually religious, religious places of religious freedom until um, Roger Williams... Uh, formed his own colony, a separatist colony in Rhode Island. So they were, the persecutors, or persecuted actually became persecutors in the United States, and we weren't even completely free from that until uh, our constant, until we formed the United States, the Constitution was written, and so forth. Well, what does all that have to do with the wealth of the Catholic Church? Well, the truth is, there's really no end to their abuses. They're a greedy organization, and so they would kill people who disagreed with them and then they would seize their property. And throughout the Inquisition, there were millions of people that were killed. And when they were brought before these trials and they were condemned to death, the next thing that Rome did was to confiscate all of their property. But it even gets worse than that because one of the things that they would do is they would go and they would dig up people. People that are dead, dig up their bones and bring the bones to trial. Now, what happens when a dead man comes to trial? 
Not much of a defense for a dead man, is there? No opportunity to repent. No opportunity to say, well, I'm sorry for that. You guys were right. You can't do that. And so they condemned them after the fact and seized the property from their heirs. This is the way that Roman Catholicism has gained its, its, its wealth throughout the centuries. Now, if you had the power to do all of that, how long do you think that it would be before the smallest infraction that you might commit would be a cause of seizing property? And that's exactly what the Roman Catholic Church has done. If there is a way to make money, they've figured out a way that they can do it. Now, let's bring that back to the tribulation. In our world today, the kinds of abuses that happened during the Dark Ages, these ages past, they're, they're not as prevalent as they are today because Rome doesn't, has the control, doesn't have the control that it once had. It doesn't have power over governments like it once had. But during the tribulation time, the church and the government will come back together again. The Roman Catholic Church needs the power of religion to help him get his start. And so he, he starts using this apostate religion to help him. And when he does, the abuses of that system will pile, pile higher and higher and higher. And Roman Catholicism right now is itching to have that power again because they've never lost their greed. What they can do, they do. And the prosperity of Rome during the tribulation time will be enhanced when they have new control and then they can devour whomever they please. So this is Babylon. This is apostate religion. It's going to come back, folks, with a vengeance. And you know why it does? Because remember when we read back this part that Satan is cast down to the earth? And when he's cast down to the earth during the tribulation period, he will do his worst. The Holy Spirit has been taken out of the world, at least as a restraining influence on sin. There are no holes barred on this religious system. And so the abuses, as I said, are going to pile up and pile up and pile up. And we can't even imagine the kind of wealth and everything that's going to take place uh, that, that the, the Roman Catholic system will have during that time. If you want to read on and see a little bit more of that, you go into chapter 18 there. It's primarily speaking about the uh, political system, but all of that is intertwined. The religious system goes along with it. So that's political or ecclesiastical Babylon. It, it will rise up, and this is the way that it's going to do it, by joining forces with the Antichrist. Now next week, we're going to come back, and we're going to look at uh, some more of these characteristics of the current apostate. And, and what we're trying to do here, I mean, we're, we're not against Roman Catholicism in the sense that we hate Roman Catholics. And I'll say this again and again and again. That's not the purpose in why we do this. The purpose is that we might expose the devil's tactics, that we might expose false religious systems, false ways of salvation, ravening wolves. That's what this is all about. And we find it right here in the Word of God that we've been warned about it. And the indicators are all here. We just put the pieces together and see how it fits. So next week we come back and we'll talk a little bit more about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your Word tonight. We ask you, Lord, that you would help us as we try to explain these different things. And, Lord, we know that many people that are here have friends and family that are Roman Catholics and it's hard to pull them out of that system because of the way that they've been taught uh, all power is in the church according to them they have the power of life and death they traffic in men's souls they traffic in sin and with the devil behind it all we can't overcome that without the Holy Spirit 
leading people to truth. So help us to do that. Lord, we pray that you'd bless our people tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to open your word again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's